Last week we looked at the first 21 verses in this chapter. We talked about a little bit about the, the pivotal nature of this chapter uh, halfway through the book of Mark. And we saw in that that the disciples lacked understanding that even though they had seen the miracles of the feeding of the 5,000 and then the 4,000, they didn't really understand completely what was going on. In the text we read last week, one of the questions, one of the rhetorical questions that Jesus asked them, he said, having eyes, do you not see? And in a very real sense, the, the disciples were suffering from a degree of spiritual blindness, um, not having clear spiritual vision. And we'll see in our text this evening how Jesus heals a blind man in a rather unusual way. And we'll see that the author, Mark, situates this account where he does in the text for a very particular reason, I think. And this healing really marks a new section in the book of Mark because we see that from this point forward through the end of chapter 10 that um, the disciples and Jesus are traveling from the northern part of the country down to Jerusalem and Jesus is facing his death. He is, he is seeing um, and he is talking more about what he came to do. And so we'll see that more as the disciples and Jesus make this journey. And in fact, there's another healing of a blind man. We see the healing of Bartimaeus at the end of chapter 10. And those two accounts, those two healings kind of form a bookend, a neat bookend for this section, this traveling section of them traveling to Jerusalem. And so we see how Mark uses this idea of of physical blindness to illustrate spiritual blindness. And, And the text this evening is a prime example of that. I want us to see it under three headings. First of all, there's an unusual means. Secondly, a partial healing that we'll see. And then lastly, a full healing. Jesus is the answer for this man's blindness. And he's the answer for the disciples' spiritual blindness, the lack of clarity that they have. And we must, of course, remember that he is the answer to your and my spiritual blindness as well. So let us pray, and then I'll read this text as we proceed into it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And I pray that even tonight that it would go in cutting and come out cutting. Lord, so that we would be exposed before you, O oh God, so that, so that you would expose our sin and, and parts of our heart that we tend to keep hidden. Lord, I pray that your word would be mighty and expose sin tonight. Lord God, I pray that, that you would help us to, to think rightly about it. And as your Holy Spirit has inspired these words by men of old that that your spirit would illuminate them to us tonight as your word is proclaimed. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Mark chapter 8, beginning with verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, 
I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us tonight in his holy and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truths upon all of our hearts. On this day, March 24th, in 1931, my dad was born. And my dad was born with some vision problems, some focusing issues, and for about 83 of his now 88 years, he has worn glasses. And some of his visual challenges have been passed down to to me and to my children. Um, I received a, a strong reminder of that this week as I had one of my children at the Department of Public Safety, and and they were just barely able to pass the, the visual test. Um, so I, I was very aware of, of the visual needs of my family. By the way, I'll make sure she has glasses before she's fully licensed. <clears throat> so I am very aware of, of my imperfect vision when I have to remove my glasses. But I've never experienced what the man in our text has experienced. And that is total blindness. And even for those today who live in the, in the darkness of blindness in the day in which we live, I think that, that few experience it like this man probably did. It's not unreasonable to suppose that there was probably little for a blind person to do in first century Palestine. As we mentioned that there's another account here in, in just a few chapters away where where the, the blind man is a beggar. Bartimaeus is described as a blind beggar. And it's, it's likely that many were reduced to begging at this time. We're, we are not told the details about this man or even his name, but we do see that he had friends. And those friends brought him to Jesus, and they begged him to heal this man. And the first thing we want to see about this text is the unusual means that Christ uses. He responds to their request by first leading the man out of the village. We're not told why Jesus did this. Likely it was simply to minister to his needs privately, away from the crowds and away from the menacing eyes of the Pharisees that always seemed to go about where Jesus was, trying to trip him up, trying to to trap him in some way. Jesus knew that that he, his time to die was coming, but it was not yet fully there. It was not time for him to be taken in by the Pharisees and the, and the scribes and the chief priests. And so it, it seems like he's doing this in, with some degree of secrecy away from the crowds. And then he takes an action that, that we saw before in another healing where Jesus uses his saliva in, in the healing... And it seems so strange to us that Jesus would would spit upon this man's eye or perhaps he spit upon his hands and and touched this man's eye. We don't know exactly why or how. It seems very strange to us, but it probably was not as strange to the original readers of the Gospel of Mark or to the man himself, for that matter. Because just as Jesus used the senses and he physically touched the man who was unable to hear in the previous account and was unable to speak properly, Jesus reached him in the way that he could sense him. 
Both of these men lacked one of their senses that were so vital for us to perceive our world. And Jesus reached this man just like he reached the other man in the way that he could be reached. He touched him. You think about the physical touch and what it means to, to put your hands upon someone. Often when, it, when, when I am anxious, sometimes my wife can just put her hand upon my shoulder and it's, it's, it's very soothing. This man was probably very anxious in the moment facing the Lord Jesus, wondering what was going on. And Jesus placed his hands upon him. And can you imagine the anticipation that this man must have felt? We know that the crowds followed Jesus. His fame was spread abroad throughout all of that region. He likely had heard of Christ's power over disease. And his friends brought him to Christ. They begged Jesus to heal him. And Jesus took the time, took him by the hand, and led him away from everyone else. He knew, he had to know it was his time. He had to have this anticipation that Jesus is going to heal me. Jesus is going to touch me. And Jesus is going to allow me to see. We know that Jesus uses a a variety of means as we've we've seen throughout um, the book of Mark up to this time. But sometimes it was with a touch, but often it was with a word. Jesus spoke. And the stormy sea turned to glass. He voiced his permission to the legion of demons. And they departed from the man and went into the herd of pigs. He spoke and the ruler's daughter was brought to life. But here it was with his saliva and with his touch that this man's sight is restored. I think there is here a reminder for us of something that that many of you know if you've walked with the Lord very long, that Jesus meets the needs of his people when and where and in whatever way he chooses to accomplish his will. God will always keep his word. He will never violate his nature. He will never operate outside of his character. But his ways are not our ways. And often God works in very unexpected ways to accomplish his purposes in us. I remember when I was in high school, I had the privilege of going to the General Motors plant in Kansas City. And it's interesting that that in later years in life, I worked in manufacturing. But I remember seeing those cars move down the assembly line. And here was a car that had no interior in it. And then from another direction, from another part of the plant, here would be a seat that would come from this, this line hanging from a hook. And the workers would pull that seat off and, wow, look at that. It's a brown seat going into a brown car or a blue seat going into the blue car. Somebody really planned this. And I just remember as a young person being amazed at at how this factory was working and these cars were coming together. And in the end is a pristine car that has the, hopefully anyway, has the right trim package and the right options and the correct color of seats and dash and everything. But remember that God is the master assembler. He's working all things after the counsel of his will. And there's no way that that we can predict or control it. Think about this. In the early 1990s, in a small electric motor plant in southeast Kansas, they began outsourcing work to Mexico. 
As a result, I worked, was working there at that time. I faced a reduction in pay and began looking for other work. God used that job search to lead me to Wichita, Kansas. Then God allowed, or I should say caused us, to meet a family there that, re- that attended a Reformed Baptist church. God brought us to that church and caused us to grow and learn under the preaching there. We became Reformed. Later, we became Presbyterian. Then I went to seminary. Then I came to Christ Church. All because a motor plant was outsourcing work to Mexico. Well, it isn't quite like that. You know that. But see how God works. See how God orchestrates things that we would never plan to accomplish his will. Could have God done that another way? Of course. But God works it in the ways that he chooses to do. God could have done, it, done that very differently in our lives. But God knew that, that I changed slowly. And I needed God's word preached to me week in and week out, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, to help me understand his word and his ways better. He knew that as a young father, I needed examples of godly men, other fathers that would walk alongside me and encourage me that we found in that Reformed Baptist church. He knew that that we were relational, that we needed relationships to encourage us and to develop alongside our growing faith and our deepening understanding of his word. God works in his way and in his time and in the way that we need. I also thought about the, the, the scripture and the, the message this morning about being ambassadors for Christ. We know that God is sovereign, that all of his elect will come. We know that, that, that we cannot stop his will and, and salvation is by grace alone. And because of, of God's electing purposes, that is, that is what causes people to come to faith. But yet God uses people. He uses you and me to accomplish that, to take the gospel, to spread it to those that need to hear his word. Secondly, in this text, we see a partial healing. So we not only see the unusual means that God, that Jesus uses, but we see this partial healing we see that in verse 24. And in the, in actually in 23, we see the question that Jesus asks him after he has laid his hands upon him. He simply says, do you see anything? And the man says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Now, what is this man saying? What a peculiar thing to say. No, these are not the ints of Tolkien's tales. They're not giants or anything, other beings that resemble trees. It's just simply the description of a man who probably had received some instruction on how things appeared and whose eyesight was only partially restored. He said he saw people, but they somehow looked like trees. Now, he must have had some sensation of what a tree was like. He had probably felt them. He had probably smelled them. Maybe he had run into them if he had not had people helping him at that time. But, but he, he didn't understand completely what he was seeing. So what happened here? Did Jesus forget something in the process and the whole thing went awry? Did, did Jesus have to ask for a mulligan to get the healing right? No. We know that God's power is not limited. We see the miraculous things that Jesus has already done. He didn't mess up here. He performed his miracles completely and fully. 
Remember, we said the miracles are signs. They point to something else. So what is this miracle pointing to? Well, we see it and we'll see it more as we progress through chapter 8. But we'll see that Jesus is giving the disciples an illustration of their lack of understanding. That they're, that they're not completely seeing things as they ought. We read later about Peter's monumental confession that we'll see in our next text where he says, Thou art the Christ. But then what do we see in just a few verses later? He is actually rebuking the Lord when Jesus talks about what is going to happen, that he's going to die. And Jesus has to in turn rebuke Peter very sharply. Peter had only a partial sight of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what about you? What about you this evening? How is your spiritual sight? Do you know Christ well enough to allow him to be continually in the process of correcting your spiritual sight? Many of us here have failing sight. I mean in a physical sense. Research shows that starting in your early 40s, the lens of the eye becomes less flexible and we lose some of the ability to focus as we once did. Can you agree with this? I'm guessing that you probably can, especially as I see some of you holding things a little farther away as you're trying to, to focus on them and read them. This condition, interestingly, is called presbyopia. I wonder if a Presbyterian ophthalmologist named it. So what do we do when we see, when we notice that our sight is failing? Well, we might do, like I just illustrated, keep holding things a little farther away from us. But what we should do is go to have a checkup. We should go and, and, and get the help that is available to help us in our sight. And we need a spiritual checkup as well. And that's what God's Word does for us. If you fail to read God's Word, you are not receiving the spiritual care and regular treatment to combat creeping spiritual vision loss. Let me say that again. If you are not reading God's Word, if you are not receiving God's Word on a regular basis, then you are not receiving the spiritual care and regular treatment to combat creeping spiritual vision loss. So what do we see here? We see see a partial healing, and then we see the full healing. Jesus lays his hands on the man again, and he opens his eyes. And it was after this second touch that this man is completely restored, and he saw everything clearly. As we said, the text last week, we saw the disciples' lack of understanding, and this text really brings it home. Jesus had completely healed this man and fully opened his eyes. He had radically changed this man's life. Can you imagine a man at that time and in that age being blind and then being able to see and realizing that his life is completely different? He's no longer dependent upon others and he can go where he wants to go. He's encountered the Savior and he'll never be the same again. And then regarding the disciples, they had not fully realized all the nuances of who Jesus is and what he came to do. They were still growing in that understanding. They were like the man that saw people and they looked like trees. But again, as we talked about last week, if you read the Acts of the Apostles, you see that Peter is on fire and he has a clear understanding of who Jesus is. And he boldly proclaims the message of salvation. And they get it. They see it clearly. 
They know the Savior and they want to proclaim His kingdom for the world to see and know. This evening, if you're here and if you're dealing with spiritual blindness, if you are like the man in this text that that is completely blind to the things of the Lord, you're, you're dead in your sin and you'll never be able to attain spiritual sight on your own. Perhaps you're like the Pharisees and you're antagonistic, even antagonistic towards the message of Christ. Perhaps you want Jesus on your own terms. And if that describes you, I say, come to Christ. See Him crucified. See Him suffering for sinners. Know that Jesus bore all the sins of all His people upon the cross. That He rose again. And that there is salvation in Jesus Christ. Place your faith and trust in Him as your only hope for salvation. Perhaps you're here and you say, hey, I got this. I'm a Christian. I can see. I have spiritual sight. I have this figured out. I say to you, be careful. Even Peter, after the day of Pentecost, when when he did understand what Christ's death and resurrection really meant, he still didn't get everything right. We see the Apostle Paul rebuking him about things and, and correcting things in his life. He still had growing to do. He, he still needed his spiritual prescription, eyeglass prescription adjusted. But where does this come in? Well, we could talk a lot of, of practical applications, but, but just a couple that I wanted to mention tonight. One is in the area of evangelism. I think that too often we as solidly reformed folks that believe in election think that evangelism is for other people. We, we can too easily say that if God is sovereign, then his elect will come. And that's true. But remember, God uses means. He uses individuals. He uses primarily the preaching of the word, but he uses people to, to share the gospel. I want to ask you, have you prayed this week that God would raise up from our own midst missionaries and preachers to take the gospel to those who have not heard? Have you prayed that God would allow you to cross paths with somebody that needs to hear about Jesus? I challenge you, do that tonight. Do that in the morning. And do that every day until, that, until God answers your prayer. Now, you're probably thinking, oh, wait a minute. I don't know how to share the gospel. I don't know how to, how to give the Romans road. It's not just about that. It's about walking with Jesus. It's about being in his word and sitting in front of his word every day and saying, Lord, give me something that I can give somebody else. And you know what? God will answer that prayer. And, God, and, and, and you'll find yourself recognizing that, that what you read in his word can be applied to somebody else's life. And it might be for, towards their salvation. It might be for their encouragement. It might be... We don't know what it is, but God's word is powerful. It's alive and it's working and you can believe in it and you can trust in it. So do that. Pray that prayer. Seek God in his word. Meditate upon it and ask him to reveal himself in it. Evangelism. I fear that we don't always have the clarity of spiritual sight in understanding that. Secondly, I think one, another practical application is that in our marriages, that often our marriages suffer from a lack of spiritual sight. 
It's, it's sad to see men and women in the church who claim to know and love the grace of Christ, who claim to be recipients of the grace of God, and who are unwilling to give grace to their spouse. Now, I know it sounds like I'm meddling here, but hear me out. I tell couples that come to me for counseling, I tell them that they need to have a grace-based marriage. Now, that's, that's a nice little slogan, but what I mean by that is that if you are a believer, if you have trusted in Christ, then you have been a recipient of God's grace. And we are called as Christians to give that grace to others. And so often in marriages, we struggle to give grace to those that are closest to us. We are to give grace. We are to be forbearing. But you know what? Christians often struggle also with receiving grace. Because they're burdened by guilt. And, they, and they've, they've not thought rightly about the grace that is ours in Christ. And sometimes they can't receive grace. So it means receiving grace as well. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you that are married, you need to see your spouse as a redeemed sinner. One who is already a beautiful vessel of God's grace. And we also need to recognize that while we are redeemed, we are far from perfect. In fact, we're really pretty messy sometimes. And as Ken Sandy said, rather than dwelling on what your spouse should do or has failed to do, learn to focus primarily on what God has done and is doing in them and for them through Christ. That is, that is so powerful. We need to recognize the, how God is at work, not just in us, but in our spouses as well. I'll, I'll confess to you, I'll just, I'll just confess this to you. I was thinking this week and, and I was praying for my wife and, and then later in the day I was reading a, a book on marriage and preparing to do some counseling and, and I was convicted that I was praying very self-centered prayers. Do you know you can do that, husbands? You can pray, Lord, help my wife to clean the house. You know, help, help her to cook good food so that, so that I can enjoy my life when I get home. No, we need to be praying for God's glory. That's what our marriage is about. We're supposed to glorify God in everything we do. So we should seek that and pray scriptural prayers for our spouse. That was something that, that the Lord laid upon me this week. Those are just two areas that, that we, we could talk about. And we could talk about much more. And, and I want to be clear tonight that lack of spiritual vision... Spiritual blindness is, is associated with unbelief. But yet, even after we come to Christ, we need to grow. We need to have our spiritual vision continually adjusted through God's Word. And that often happens as we sit under the preaching of His Word, Lord's Day by Lord's Day. If we, as the church of Jesus Christ, are going to take the gospel forth and proclaim it to the world, if we're going to make mature disciples, then we need to have clear spiritual vision. We must seek to know Christ as he reveals himself in his word. We must take him at his word. And if we think about Peter and the apostles from this point forward, what was it that forged them into the men of God that, that God used so mightily? Well, it was walking with Christ and it was the things that they experienced. Now, we won't be apostles like they were, but we too will grow as we embrace the things that God brings our way and as we grow in grace 
through His Word. May God give us grace to walk close to Christ, to endure trials as good soldiers, and to allow God to continually adjust our eyesight according to His Word so that we can see Him clearly and proclaim Him clearly to a lost and dying world. Let us pray.